and welcome to episode 27 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Ed Klaus, a reporter for The Telegraph in London. This is a classic bait and switch. You probably clicked on the episode thinking, oh, I'll hear about the UK and Brexit or something. But this interview is really about the Middle East. Ed was a reporter in Dubai for years before he was kicked out after writing a story too sensitive for the government there. You'll hear all about that in our conversation, as well as an in-depth discussion of how censorship and control of the press works in practice in Dubai. But even that description might give you the wrong impression that this is some self-serious episode. I think this episode is actually highly entertaining. Ed's career started out as a comedy of errors, as I think he'll readily admit. He's been fired from most every job he's had, but the key was that he kept getting fired for increasingly better reasons, until he was fired for going up against Dubai censorship. There's lots to like in this episode as we also delve into feeling ill at ease in your home country after many years abroad, how comment sections of newspapers are total clusterfucks, and the cosmopolitan but classist shopping mall of a city-state that is Dubai. There are probably some other things I'm forgetting too, but without further ado, here's my conversation with Ed Klaus of The Telegraph in London. Just to warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene for us and the listeners, just give me an idea of what time it is by you, where you are geographically and physically, and also what the past week has been like in terms of work. So it's just coming up to quarter past nine in the evening on Sunday night. And I'm just outside of London in the sort of suburbs. I'm actually at my parents' home right now, visiting them. I'm actually in my childhood bedroom <laughs> at the moment. So uh, yeah, quite interesting setting. And the last week at work has been eventful, bit of a respite compared to the weeks that came before it. I'm the energy correspondent. So oil markets have been my key focus for the last few weeks and they've been pretty wild. So this past week has actually been a bit of a respite, but it's still been busy nonetheless. And these times there's something every single day with coronavirus that just knocks you off your feet and gives you something to do. So it's been busy, been very, very busy. Yeah, the crash in oil prices, it was huge news for like two, three days. And under any other circumstances, I feel like it would continue to be the news of the day. But with coronavirus, it's just once again gone into the background. In any other situation, it would be so dominant. But mm. yeah, everything it's, is screwed up at the moment. So Yeah, it's just another thread in a big sort of tapestry of, of chaos, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So... The first section of the interview, I would say, is about understanding how you got to where you are today and taking the really long view. So if you could start way back with where were you born, what growing up was like, a little bit about your education, and if you happen to start to take an interest in journalism early on. Sure. Yeah, yeah. To answer your last question first, I never really had an interest in being a journalist from an early age, but I have always had a deep and enduring passion for news. And I think I've probably been a news junkie since I was about 11. So I'm 28 now, born in 1991. And the first major news event I remember was 9-11 that I truly remember. I do remember the death of Princess Diana, 
but 9-11 was a very, very memorable moment for me. And then following the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, I was very, very fixated by those events and can still remember the night vision tracer rounds over Baghdad, seeing this bizarre, colorful, terrifying thing on the screen and just being hooked. And so these really formative fragments of memory that you have from your childhood of big news events stay with you forever. And I think every time I get a push alert on my phone or a buzz of a news flash, one of my neurological receptors probably kicks in. And it was, it's the same thing that's been kicking in since I was about 10 or 11. Do you know what I mean? So I think, I think that's, <laughs> yeah. that's always touching that same part of your brain and you slowly get hooked on it and that took me a long time to get from that young 11 year old boy watching the news and being fascinated with the news to actually being involved in the news personally and it took an extremely circuitous route via a stint in the Middle East and so I studied political science at university and had no idea what I was going to be or what I was going to do. So came out of university and had one of those existential crises, staring down the barrel of your life and wondering, now I'm out of the educational system. It's like you've become so institutionalized and you wonder, now I've got the independence and freedom to choose what I want to do. What am I going to do? And it took me a few years, actually, and I did all kinds of odd jobs. You know, I worked as a mailman in a big corporate <laughs> office. So I would deliver letters to people's desks, which was probably the right thing to do at that time. I was 21 and I had my degree in political science. I was probably in need of a bit of a humbling. And so being the mailman, I got humbled, which I needed probably. And people treated me awfully. And I silently was furious, like I have a degree, you know, and, and all of this <laughs> kind of stuff. And so I did that. And then I worked on an IT help desk. Was this calls. all in London? This or was all London in London yeah, area. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. This was all in and around London. So then I had a job on an IT help desk where I would take calls from people within the company who had forgotten their password after a long <laughs> weekend or something, and they would come back into the office and not be able to get onto their system, and they would call the IT help desk and say, can you reset my password? And so that was my job for a few months and got fired from that because I wasn't very good at it. And, <laughs> and so the sort of story of my early career was essentially just doing jobs that I was in no way cut out to do and just not being very good at them at all and ultimately getting fired and sort of having to pick myself up and go okay well I know that wasn't the thing and so what is the next thing I'm going to try and after about a year of doing that and not getting anywhere and becoming kind of increasingly frustrated I had an offer to move out to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates and the offer was from someone I knew who was working at a magazine out there, uh, an economics magazine. He was a salesman and he was running the sales division of the magazine. And he said, why don't you come out and try your hand at sales? You know, you're personable and you can talk and why don't you come and give it a go? And I thought, this is brilliant. I've always loved the Middle East. I've always loved being abroad, traveling. And I think this is what I need. I need a bit of a clean slate. I need to leave the UK and try my hand at doing something completely different in a completely new environment. And so I interviewed and I got the job and I flew out to Dubai and I, I never really looked back. I never thought about it. I kind of knew this is what I had to do. I was kind of out of ideas in the UK. So flew out to Dubai and got a job at this magazine and was, again, not very good at advertising and not very good at sales. It wasn't 
what I was cut out for. I wasn't very good at asking people for money. I was good at calling people and talking to them about their lives and their problems and what they were going through at their mm-hmm. companies or whatever, but I wasn't good at turning around at the end of that conversation and saying, so is it okay if I send you the contract and we'll sign on the dotted line for $5,000 worth of advertising or whatever? I just wasn't very good at that. And you have to be comfortable with asking for money and to be good at sales. And so that lasted a little while. And then I kind of crashed and burned from that because I wasn't selling anything. And I went to the editor of the magazine on the editorial side of the business from the commercial side. And I said, would you give me a chance? And he said, yes. I don't know why. I was incredibly lucky that he did. And I suppose the rest is history in terms of my career in journalism, so to speak, that that is how I ended up becoming a journalist. And of course, there's many more sort of twists and turns from there. But that was how I first stepped foot into a newsroom. What was the name of the magazine? Uh, That was the Middle East Economic Digest or Mead. Okay, does it still exist? In some form, it does. Yes, in some form, it does. It's kind of like The Economist of the Middle East. It's pretty analytical. It's like a very, very expensive subscription. It's like $1,500 a year to subscribe to. And it basically offers projects, news and tender information and a lot of real hard data on projects in the Middle East. So it was was really popular with like contractors and big engineering firms and stuff like that who would bid for big oil and gas contracts or big construction contracts. They would get all of their information from this magazine. About 12 people read it, but they all paid loads of money to read it. And so (laughs) it, it was kind of a bizarre audience to write for because obviously it had a paywall and no one I knew was actually reading my work, but it was a great start. Yeah, yeah. My first job in China was at this place called China Economic Review, which was also very in the style of The Economist. Right. And also had who knows how many people actually read it. And also, yeah, now exists only in some form. I don't think there's quite that model. But those kind of mid-level places, unfortunately, are increasingly disappearing. But they're an important way stop on your way into the industry. Otherwise, you know, you Mm. can't go straight to a place like the Telegraph. You can, but it's a little bit more difficult. Had you ever been to Dubai before or was it your first time? No, I had. I had been to Dubai. I went in 2002, just before the start of the invasion of Iraq. And I remember actually being on my hotel balcony as the fighter jets were flying overhead. And it was a very different place at that time. It was still pretty undeveloped. And there were only a few hotels. There was a couple of malls. And then I hadn't been between 2002 and when I moved out there in 2014 and it had completely changed. It was this sprawling, bizarre mix of East and West and it was much bigger and much louder and brasher than it had been when I went there in 2002. So yeah, I traveled a bit around the Middle East, more around the Levant than the Gulf before moving out there, which is kind of why I had that desire to move to the Middle East. And what was the deal with your family that you were a kid and going on vacation in Dubai? Oh, you mean in 2002 or 2014? Yeah, yeah. No, I was with my family. Now it's extremely popular with Brits as a tourism destination. It could be minus five degrees Celsius in London in mid-December, mid-January, and you fly six and a half hours 
to Dubai and it's plus 25 degrees Celsius. So it's extremely popular for a winter getaway, but it's also very westernized and it has all the Western brands. You know, it's very familiar. You can get everything you want there as a European or a British tourist. My family went there in 2002 before it was really popular because both my parents just, they travel to quite weird places. They both have always traveled to quite strange <laughs> places. And so I think they had just decided that like Dubai was this up and coming destination destination. It was something that was worth checking out, I suppose. We've gone to a lot of quite odd places together as a family. So, um, so yeah, so I guess that was the reason for the choice, I suppose. Gotcha. But your parents, they're not diplomats or international journalists or anything like that. No, no, no. My mum works for a suicide helpline. Like she's on the phones taking calls at the charity. And my dad works in hospitality, like corporate hospitality. So he organizes conferences and stuff. So no, neither of them are diplomats or journalists. Although my mum's parents were diplomats. So she grew up in a diplomatic family. My grandfather on my mum's side was a diplomat. So she grew up in Pakistan and India and various other places. So they've both traveled a lot and they both enjoy being abroad. I think that's probably where I got, if not my passion for traveling, at least braveness to be able to just say like, okay, I'm 21 or whatever, and I'm going to move countries. So yeah, I'm quite grateful for that, I suppose. So how long did you stay at this magazine? And I guess, tell me if there were any highlights or walk me through the next couple of moves. So the magazine for a few years and I suppose learned the ropes there and then I left the magazine after I <laughs> I was in a I was in like a long distance relationship and it was like quite difficult being in this long distance relationship so I decided that I was gonna fly to the place where my partner was living at the time and like make things better and resolve our issues and sort of try and smooth things out the only problem was I sort of decided one morning that this was the right thing to do so I left that evening <laughs> and flew like 18 hours to be with her. Honestly, I don't know why. I, I'm not quite sure why I did it. I can be a bit impulsive sometimes. And I wonder if, if I sustained some head injuries as a child, perhaps, or something like that. I, sometimes I don't know why I can be quite impulsive. So I flew there and then realized that I was in the middle of nowhere and had no chance of getting back in time for work. And so concocted this cockamamie excuse for why I couldn't be in the office. Obviously, the company found out and fired me. And so I was like oh, distraught, right? Like I'd finally found what I felt was my calling. I was going to be a journalist. Like this is what I really, really wanted to do. It was so much better than delivering letters to people or answering calls on the IT help desk. I had this like benchmark for what a shit job was. And I had this benchmark for what like a great job was and I'd blown it and I'd blown it through this mixture of immaturity and impulsiveness and I felt really awful. And Dubai is not a particularly fun place to be when you've lost your job, right? It's a pretty tough place to be at the best of times. And so if you lose your job, then you're pretty much out of the country. And as I'm sure it's probably the same in China, right? Like your life there is tied to your work visa. If you lose your work visa, then you have to leave. And so I pulled every trick in the book to stay in the country. And I had my visa extended. And I did some freelance work with Thomson Reuters and one of their offshoots. They have an SME offshoot in the Middle East called Accelerate SME. Uh, What's an SME just for people who are listening? It's a small and medium enterprise. So it's basically like content geared at 
small business owners, how to accelerate your startup or how to get funding, that kind of stuff. So I was writing about really like tips, like practical advice for startups in the Middle East. That was under the umbrella of Thomson Reuters. So I did some freelancing there for a few months. I did some work with the UN on some projects, some copy editing and writing for them. And that was basically just to keep a roof over my head and keep paying to stay in Dubai until I found a job. And I eventually took a job in PR, which was super attractive at the time because it was going to pay me loads of money. And Dubai is a really expensive place to live. And I'd moved out there kind of poor. And I was even poorer two and a half years later. You know, it was a really, really tough place to live as a young person not making much money. So this PR firm came around and offered me a really good salary. And they said, you'll basically be like a journalist for hire. And you'll just do loads of writing, but we'll pay you really well for it. And I thought, okay, yeah, that sounds good. I'll be able to move out of this room that I'm living in. I was living in this room without any windows. And um, yeah, it was really rough. There was no windows. And I don't know if you've ever lived in a room without windows, but you lose all sense of time and your body clock. It's just crushed. It's just awful. And so I was like, I can get into a room with some windows. This will be like a massive (laughs) improvement in my (laughs) quality of life. And um, so I joined the PR firm and quickly realized that it was this horrible, desolate content factory of just misery. And everyone who worked there was really miserable. And there was this really strict adherence to the policy of always curtailing the truth and always lying, always just suppressing information. And I was like, this feels awful. Like on a gut level, it felt really disgusting to work at a place that was trying to hide things and so wait like where would this stuff you were writing show up so it'd show up as like an op-ed or like an opinion piece by the ceo of a big company like a, a major corporation in a newspaper in dubai so here's a tip for anyone listening whenever you see a ceo or a senior official or an executive with an opinion piece in a newspaper they've never written it themselves okay that is a complete uh, <laughs> complete lie it's always been written by a pr agency to be completely honed and crafted to get in all of the messages that they want to get in so there's zero there's zero nutritional content in that opinion piece from the mind of that person because it's all just churned out by a content factory so that's what i was doing i was writing those columns for those people and of course because i got bored and i was uninterested i did what i've always done and that is essentially try and make things a bit more interesting for myself and i did that just just by making the language a bit more colorful and inserting a few jokes that i knew would never really make it into the final cut but sort of entertained me whilst writing it and in the end about two and a half months in one of these jokes i was writing an opinion piece about pokemon go Uh, Remember the sort of the AR augmented reality game that was all the rage in 2016. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah. No, it was a big deal because you could not play it in China because they were worried you would wander into like a military base or something. So we were were all just envious of like what is going on in the rest of the world. 
<laughs> right, you would find like a blast toys in a, some secret nuclear facility or something. <laughs> yeah, so I was writing this awful opinion piece on how Pokemon Go could cure the Middle East of its diabetes epidemic. Um, because it would encourage these overweight young Gulf Arab children to go out and walk around and lose weight in the process. And by way of context, the Gulf has one of the highest rates of diabetes in the world. It has a huge cardiovascular disease issue. It has extremely high rates of obesity because people there are incredibly sedentary. This is some of the most sedentary people in the world. And so it's a big issue. It's a big public health crisis in the Gulf. And so anyway, I wrote this piece and I made a joke at the beginning of the piece about religion and about children kind of wandering through the desert looking for invisible creatures. <laughs> and it was obviously, you know, kind of an offensive joke or it could be perceived to be an offensive joke. I, I didn't mean it in any ill manner, but it obviously was not the kind of thing that the CEO of an extremely serious corporation, it's not the kind of joke they would be making. And so they fired me from the PR agency. Oh, and wow. so if you're listening at this point, you're thinking this guy keeps getting fired. He's a complete mess. His career is a disaster. You're absolutely right. All of those things are true. I'm not the person to base your career on. It's been extremely unconventional. But after that last job in PR, I was like, okay, I'm going to pull my socks up. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to put in the work and I'm going to really apply myself this time. And so I sort of set about trying to find a job in journalism again. And I met a man called Scott Shuey, who was the business editor of Gulf News, which is the largest English language newspaper in the Middle East. And I interviewed with him and he said, oh, I can see that you worked in PR and I don't really like PR. And I said, listen, I hate PR. I was fired. Here's why I was fired. This is the honest truth. I didn't enjoy it at all. They hated me. I'll never be a good PR person and I will never, ever go back to PR. And later on, he told me that being so honest about what a car crash, what a disaster my time in PR had been was actually kind of a green light to him that I was kind of someone that he could work with because he had had a lot of suspicions about me because I'd been in PR. And I think that's an enduring thing in journalism that you can go from journalism into PR, but you can never do the reverse and go into journalism from PR. And so because of those conflicting motivations that I was talking about earlier, the desire to suppress information and suppress truth, within PR is so counter to the motivations of journalism that I think most editors, most hiring editors would be extremely suspicious of anyone coming from PR into journalism. And so fortunately, Scott decided to take a chance on me and he saw I wasn't someone who had had a successful career in PR and he hired me. And that was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I had an incredible time. Scott was an amazing editor. We had a really, really tight-knit team. Very small. It wasn't a huge operation. There was only about 10, 12 people on the business desk. But everyone, it was just a real solid operation. And it was an incredible, incredible time in my life. It was a really, really wonderful job to have. And, and I learned so much from Scott. That's where I got my break, I would say. It was at Golf News. And that's where I learned a lot. That's great. Yeah. Really 
pulled it back from the brink, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. There's a few more. It doesn't all, you know, it's, no, it's not like a super happy ending from here, but but the overall trajectory gets a lot better from here on out in the story. <laughs> And so did you have a beat or were you doing general business or what were you covering? Yeah, so I was on the retail beat initially and then I added hospitality, like hotels and tourism. So I was covering like the malls, which were a huge part of Dubai's economy. And I was covering the hotel sector, which was the other biggest contributor to the Emirates economy. And then latterly, I ended up covering tech for the last part of my time there. Okay. Where to go first? Well, Mega had mentioned that, I don't know if this is true or not, but you got kicked out from a country. Is that where this goes next? Is that Yeah, that is true. So, well, I mean, I suppose being kicked out calls to mind (laughs) images of me being marched to the airport in handcuffs. And that wasn't the case. And a lot of journalists in the Middle East have literally been kicked out, have been deported from various countries, Egypt, Oman, even the UAE. The UAE now is a lot more sophisticated. I would say they've taken a play out of the book of countries like China and other authoritarian countries in that they know that they can just basically bureaucratically slow roll you. And in doing that, they avoid the fanfare of a journalist being marched to the airport in handcuffs, but they get the desired effect. And so I had pretty much like a similar situation to Mega in that I published a story, the story came out, it generated a lot of controversy in the country, and I lost my job. I was fired. And I know that I promised or I suggested earlier that I wasn't going to get fired again. But this time, for the first time in my career, I was fired for something that I didn't really deserve to be fired for. So that was a new experience. (laughs) And that hurt the most, you know, really, really, really hurt that one because I had finally got my self on track. I was finally applying myself and I was I was doing really, really good work. And I sort of thought everything was going okay. And I was having good conversations with bigger media outlets about taking a step up from the newspaper to an international publication in Dubai. And so that was all going really, really well. And I had this plan. And then I just got fired out of the blue. My boss, Scott, basically just took me to one side on a Monday morning and he said, we're letting you go. And he didn't know why. He'd just been told to do it by the managing editor and the editor-in-chief. And there was no explanation. It wasn't clear why this was happening. What um, was the story you had written? I don't really understand how on those beats you could have raised that much. Sure. Uh, I mean, so I should clarify, because it wasn't a huge team, I dipped in and out of like various different areas of coverage all the time. So it's quite a strange situation. I did two stories in the space of one week. And the first story was a piece about the management consultancy, Booz Allen Hamilton. Booz Allen Hamilton is this huge listed American management consultancy that does the vast majority of its work with like the Pentagon and the US military. And they're a bit like McKinsey or a bit like Bain or Boston Consulting Group. They're very well-heeled consultants who go into companies and tell them how they should be run. But what Booz Allen Hamilton does and what it's made its name for is doing that, but with the military. So they help with procurement of weapons and of supplies. They help streamline all those processes. So that's what they're most famous for. Obviously, 
Edward Snowden is probably their most notable or well-known former employee. Edward Snowden was actually a Booz Allen Hamilton employee when he was contracted to the NSA. So they're big in cybersecurity and they helped develop the UAE's cybersecurity architecture and their surveillance network. And what they also have done and have had a big hand in is military tactics of countries outside of the US. So this is a big area of business for them now. And my story was about how essentially they were helping the governments of the UAE and Saudi Arabia conduct their war in Yemen. And the story was very, very straightforward. I knew it would be controversial. I knew talking about the war in Yemen, which the UAE was a part of, it's a really, really sensitive subject in the UAE. And I knew it'd be controversial. So I played it very straight. And the story essentially was Booz Allen Hamilton is hiring two dozen members of staff to move to the UAE and Saudi Arabia to help them fight their war in Yemen. And essentially what Booz Allen Hamilton was looking for in these public job postings was extremely, extremely senior, high-ranking military officials from the U.S. Army who had had experience at the real upper echelons of the U.S. military. They wanted them to sort of leave their posts or retire from their posts and take up exorbitantly lucrative positions in the Middle East, advising these Gulf kingdoms on their war in Yemen, which is a humanitarian disaster. It has been named by the UN as the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. And here is a listed US company aiding the fighting, the, the complete crippling of this country and aiding the countries that are doing that. So that was the story. And it was very straight down the line. There was barely any mention of the humanitarian crisis in Yemen because I knew that would kick off. So I played it very, very straight. The story came out late on a Friday evening and it, it had been taken down off of the website by Saturday morning. Oh, wow. um, it, it had been deleted off of the website. And I had loads and loads of calls from my boss, Scott, who was asking me, oh, you know, what's happened? How did this story make it through? He had had his day off the day before when the story came out. So it uh. hadn't. He, he hadn't checked it for sensitivity and it hadn't been checked by the usual people. And so it had caused this huge storm of anger at the newspaper. Anyway, fast forward five days and a piece I've written on Uber comes out. And it's about how Uber treats its staff in the Middle East and how it treats its contractors, I should say, not its staff. So the guys that drive its cars, as opposed to the people that work in the Uber corporate office. And this was a six month project. It was a project that I had spent a long time working on. And it finally came out and it caused, I wouldn't say controversy, but it generated a lot of chatter because in a very malnourished environment for information any story that touches on issues that people are not really supposed to be talking about it is a massive deal and so the story came out and then the following day i was fired and so for a long time i assumed that i had been fired for the uber story right and hmm. i was like okay it's the uber story that got me fired and that's fair enough that makes sense so a few weeks later i'm in singapore and i get this message and it's from a member of staff at Gulf News, and they say to me, there's this huge argument going down between executive members of staff, like the sort of managing editor and so on, and they're arguing, and I can hear your name coming up, and I can hear the word Yemen. And this 
person who was working at Golf News who had messaged me then told me that there had been this chatter within the office and completely coincidentally it come up that another member of staff had a family member within the royal court of Abu Dhabi and that member of staff at Golf News had said I have been contacted by that cousin who works within the royal court I was the one that was told to take the story down the Yemen story because it was a national security threat. And so that was really the kind of closure that I suppose I'd been looking for in terms of why has this happened to me? Why have I been fired? What have I done? I think that was the closest I'll ever get to really understanding why most likely I was fired. And I'm really grateful that I got that because a lot of people never do. A lot of people who are kicked out of countries or who do have their visas cancelled never really know why or never get an official explanation. But the fact is that just thankfully and completely by chance, I had managed to hear from someone who was close to the ruling family and the ruler of Abu Dhabi. And I've been able to find out that my piece had been considered this national security threat. And I'd essentially had a ex put up on my name and the paper had been asked to to get rid of me as a result of that story and so what then happened was of course my visa was cancelled i had 30 days to leave the country and that was the end of my tenure in dubai and in the middle east unfortunately and it was really really tough it was really really difficult wow yeah that's a hell of a story i'm curious it doesn't sound like it was the kind of work environment where people day to day thought that much about self-censoring themselves or was it it was it absolutely was yeah self-censorship was rife at golf news and is rife among all of the large newspapers in the region it's a strange environment and the people that have worked there the longest are very attuned to what can and can't be said. And so stories like the Yemen one would never have seen the light of day had my editor, had Scott been on that day. And that wasn't a conscious decision on my part to push it through whilst my editor was on his day off. Although that does happen. People know how to game the system to get a story that's controversial out. And that's just the nature of working at a small newspaper in a censorious environment. But... No, the story had landed in my lap. I'd stumbled across these job postings. And so I pushed the story out that day. I was just lucky that it didn't get spiked, that it didn't get killed before it ever was published. If it had gone past a different sub-editor or a different editor, then it could well have been killed. But yeah, no, self-censorship was extremely rife among long-standing members of staff. And they would kind of pass that down, like what can and can't be said. And I'd always had a problem with that. You know, I'd always had a problem with the censorship and I'd always said to myself I can't do this for that much longer but I can sort of talk about how censorship works at the newspaper if that would be interesting to your listeners. I'm just curious like you write a story that is sensitive and what is that conversation actually like how frank are people are they just like listen this is sensitive we can't do this end of story. I just find it hard to imagine those conversations between an editor and a reporter. Like it just seems so blatantly against what so many journalists stand for. Like, how do you have that conversation in any way that's palatable? (laughs) Well, it becomes palatable, right? Like anything, it becomes palatable over time, the more you do it. And look, the money that people were making was decent. 
and so people just shut up and take the check but how it works in practical terms is there are certain subjects that you just know you can't write about right so it's not even a discussion most of the time around come on let's do this let's let's do this story it's like this is never going to fly prostitution for example sex work is a huge issue in the gulf and you can't talk about it you know and so how that conversation would go is they introduced VAT whilst I was in Dubai, whilst I was at the newspaper. They introduced tax for the first time in the history of the country. There'd never been a, any kind of VAT or any kind of tax on anything, really. And I wanted to do a story on how all of these massage parlors that were fronts for sex work were going to comply with VAT. Like, how are they going to pay taxes? Because it's all cash in hand. My boss was just like, he just, you know, they gave me a look like, come on. You know, this is like, he, you know, everyone laughs, right? It's like a joke. It's a joke because everyone knows that story is never going anywhere. Everyone knows that you could spend a month, two months, whatever. You could do all the writing and all the research and the reporting, and it's never going to see the light of day. So it's not worth your time. It's a waste of your time. And my Uber story was a hard fought battle to really get that out because it was about working conditions for migrant laborers. It was about corporate malpractice about how Uber was exploiting these people. And ultimately, it was about the failing of the government to protect them. And so it was kind of this holy trinity of really controversial issues in the eyes of the paper. And so I had to fight really, 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 really hard to get it out and to get it out in a shape that I was proud of, to get it out in a form that was recognizable to me, which I did in the end. So censorship cuts that way in terms of not being able to talk about certain things. And then it cuts the other way in terms of government interference in a newspaper in that we were essentially told this is something you need to be covering. If there was something on the agenda of the government, we would hear about it. And the movements of the paper's position on certain issues were visible, which is fascinating, right? Because if you think about the New York Times or The Guardian, the movements of their positions on certain issues the kind of minutiae of how their stance has changed, both in their news writing and their editorials, it will be imperceptible because it's so small, right? But the movements at Gulf News were, when Trump was first elected, we were super pro-Trump because the ruling families of Dubai and Abu Dhabi were very pro-Trump. They were very keen for a fresh start under a new US president. And they were keen to build sort of new relations. And when the Muslim ban happened... And when the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem took place in Israel, we had heard that the position on Trump was going to change before it actually did. Essentially, the government of the UAE was talking to the managing editor of the newspaper and telling him, look, as a country now, we are anti-Trump. So your line in the newspaper needs to reflect that. So you could see these things happening. And because the managing editor had a direct line to the government, government policy became editorial policy very quickly. And so that was fascinating to watch, but also deeply disturbing because who knows what that can apply to tomorrow. Anything could happen and the government could just tell us to stop writing about X and the next day we have to stop writing about it. So that was really, really very, very strange, very strange environment to work in. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. And I guess, yeah, what happens after that? What's your next move? Yeah. So I essentially realized that there's nowhere I can stay in Dubai. I'm being kind of bureaucratically blackballed. So the government is just not going to give me another work visa. So there's no chance of staying in Dubai. So I leave and I come back to London 
and I'm here and I'm like, shit, you know, I've, I've built my career in the Middle East. How am I going to establish myself here in London when I don't have any experience being a journalist in the UK? And I just sort of hit the phones. I had those clips. I had those stories. And I sort of just hit the phones and called up every business desk I could find and got through to Sky News, which is a big broadcaster. And they kind of offered me an interview and I got a job there and I was there for a while and that was great. And it was really, really fun. And and I enjoyed working at Sky News. And then The Telegraph came around and said, would you like to join as an energy correspondent? And at Sky News, I was was doing a lot of breaking news Mm -hmm. and I wasn't doing a lot of reporting. So I decided let's join a newspaper again and let's try and get some proper reporting done. Let's try and do some proper storytelling. So that was that. And so that was kind of like I moved back to the UK after being in Dubai. And I was like, you know, I'm going to struggle to find anything here because I just don't have the experience or the contacts here. And it's completely exceeded my expectations. It's been an incredible experience. I'm so, so happy that it's worked out the way it has. I would caveat that by saying that that's a professional perspective on it. From a personal perspective, it's been very, very difficult adjusting to life back here in the UK. It's been really, really tough being uprooted from the Middle East, sort of from my life there and having to start again here. I appreciate that it's not the greatest suffering that anyone can go through and it's not an awful thing. But just for me, personally speaking, it's been quite tough because it's just an adjustment. And I was there for six years and I I really missed it. And it was really, really painful to leave. So it's been tough kind of adjusting to working here whilst having that experience personally. But I think from speaking to other people who've left a country and moved back to their home country, because I think that's the key part is like going back home is the tough part because you have to adjust to a place that ostensibly feels familiar, but also feels very alien to you by that point. If I'd moved to Hong Kong or if I'd moved to New York or wherever, then it would be a different conversation. But I think moving home And fulfilling all of these dreams that you've had over the six years that you've been abroad, these dreams of being closer to your family, of being closer to your childhood friends, of being closer to that familiarity of home, finally realizing that, you know, finally having that is a really tough thing to contend with because it isn't always what you thought it would be and it's hard. It isn't what you remembered it to be. But it's something that a lot of people who do live abroad talk about and it's something that I know is not unique to me. I know that makes a lot of sense to me. I go back to the U.S. and feel pretty strange there. So I I get the personal adjustment. I think what's changed is just I got used to seeing my parents once every six months or once every nine months or whatever. And then here I am in London and I haven't seen them for a month. And they're like, you're living down the road from us. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, and then I'm like, oh, I'm I'm not seeing my parents enough. It's quite mundane, but it's something that you get used to when you're abroad, just living a certain way and coming home and really making the most of every moment with your friends, like savoring every single moment with your family. You go from that to then having this abundance of time with your family, of time with your friends and feeling like you're not using it enough or feeling like you're not making the most of it maybe. is So that's quite tough. And just, again, like the familiarity of London, it doesn't feel like I'm moving somewhere new because it's so familiar. And yet it's not familiar in like a comforting way or like a warm way. It's not like a sense of like, oh, I'm home. It's like home is Dubai. 
that's where I'm used to. That's where I know the roads and I know everything. And this is like, it's like an approximation of familiarity, but it's also really alien at the same time. Like, it, it, do you know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't ring particularly true. And so that's a weird, like, cognitive dissonance to go through. Yeah, I can imagine what it's like. But yeah, I haven't made that jump yet. And I wonder how it will be, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And I was just curious because Dubai does have such a reputation. And I honestly don't know just about anybody who's lived there. I really don't know what to make out of it. So I was just curious what it was like living there and what you thought of the life. And if you were just there for work or if you enjoyed other aspects of it. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's going to sound really ridiculous now after kind of crying about how difficult it's been coming back here and sort of how Dubai was home. I never really enjoyed living there that much in the sense that it wasn't a particularly enriching place to be. And I think for the first few years, it was great. But for the last couple of years, it wasn't. And so the reason for that is Dubai is a party place, right? Dubai is like Las Vegas in the desert. It's a bit like a slice of America. It's got like chilies and Arby's and Cheesecake Factory. (laughs) And it's got Shake Shack and Five Guys. And it's got all of the American amenities that you would expect or that you would hope and so it's got the mega malls and everyone does their socializing at the malls and it's all centered around that and the beaches and so it's this glitzy shining metropolitan city and it doesn't have a ton of what we in the west would consider conventional culture so it doesn't really have theaters it doesn't really have that many art galleries although there is this beautiful and budding art scene now in dubai there is like a brilliant amateur dramatic scene springing to life in dubai so there are these shoots of life on the cultural front but broadly speaking it's very very cinema malls beaches nightclubs restaurants and it's a party place like it's a holiday place people go on and they're on holiday and so a lot of the people who live there imbibe that holiday mindset and like i'm working here but i'm essentially on holiday and brits have that view because the sun never shines in the uk when they go to <laughs> dubai and the sun is shining they're like oh, I'm on holiday. My life is a holiday. You know, my life is a vacation now. And even though they're working, they're out every single night. They're in the nightclubs or they're on the beaches. So Dubai is like a very, very fast, fun place for young people. But it's also really attractive for older people because it's very safe. Like it's the safest place I've ever visited. It's like incredibly safe. So families love it. And so it's a great place for those two groups. People in their mid-20s who just want to go out all the time and have fun. Or families who are a bit more progressed in like their careers and stuff and are taking advantage of the fact that there's no income tax. So they're making loads of money and they're living in a nice house and they're able to get help for the kids like maids and nannies. So Dubai is very attractive for those two groups. I was that former group when I first moved out there. You know, I was partying all the time and I was having a good time. Later on, a few years down the road, I was looking for something a bit more. Like I was looking for a bit of substance and... I scratched beneath the surface of Dubai and it didn't really have that or it didn't have quite what I was looking for. But I will say that a common misconception about Dubai is that there is no 
culture full stop and i do dispute that i think it's fair or more accurate to say that it has no culture as we would think of it in the west as you know art galleries museums theaters and so on but dubai has bucket loads of culture if you're interested in a incredibly rich tapestry of nationalities and ethnicities and different types of life and what i mean by that is nowhere on earth at least nowhere i've ever been to are you more able to travel around a city and at one moment be in somewhere that is unrecognizable from downtown bombay and the next minute you're in an area that looks like manhattan and the next minute you're in an area that it looks like manila it's so bizarre like it's such a bizarre place because it has been built by migrant workers from the Philippines, from Pakistan, from India, from Bangladesh. And it came from the sand. It came from the desert, literally. It didn't exist like 50 years ago. It has the fingerprints of these people all over it. And that is a fascinating experience. You want to talk about melting pots. London, New York, like these places don't compare. They're not even close to the kind of melting pot that Dubai is because the indigenous population i.e. the Emiratis, the locals, are like a tiny fraction of the overall population. They're like 10%, 15% of the entire country's population. Everyone else is a foreigner, myself included. So it's a country made up of foreigners. That's a fascinating experiment, and it's a fascinating experience. And so from that perspective... It has tons of culture. If you want to eat Pakistani food, if you want to go to a Filipino nightclub, it's all there. And so in that sense, it's got tons of culture. And I resent people who say that Dubai has no culture. What they mean by culture in that instance is theatres, museums and so on which it doesn't have a lot of, but it does have a lot of soul and a lot of spirit. And it's a kind of an amazing place from that perspective. But it is a very tightly controlled country. It's a bit like Singapore, you know, in that sense. Dubai is a small city state that is very tightly controlled. Freedom of speech is extremely suppressed. And it's a very, very strange place to live in that sense. Like, it's very stratified in terms of, like, the class system. Emiratis or the locals are at the top. And other Arabs sit below them. And then Westerners, Americans, Brits, probably on the same level as those other Arabs. And then you go down and migrant workers from the Philippines, from India, Pakistan, who are the construction workers or the waiters in the restaurants, they're very much at the bottom of society and they're treated accordingly. And so it's a heartbreaking place to live for compassionate people who see those things and feel bad. And that great that becomes very jarring. It's hard to live there and know what's going on. And it's particularly hard to live there as a journalist and not be able to report on those things because you're at a newspaper that is censoring your work. So that's very tough. And I think towards the end of my time there, that experience of seeing that oppression, seeing that ill treatment, it becomes you know really heartbreaking. And, you know, I think an example of this that really illustrated just how gaping the class divide is it might sound subtle to your listeners but i was crossing the road one day after leaving work one evening and a four by four like a range rover with blacked out windows came flying over this pedestrian crossing just as i was walking nearly halfway across the road this four by four came flying out of nowhere and i had to jump backwards otherwise i would have been hit by this car and 
around me were like three Filipino workers who had also just got off their shift from a different business. And they were also standing by me when this car flew past and they would have been hurt as well by this idiot who was driving so recklessly. And I turned and gesticulated wildly. I put my middle finger up and I said, you fucking idiot, you know, you could have killed us, you moron. And he obviously sped off into the distance. But the Filipinos that were standing next to me looked at me like I was the one who had nearly run them over. They looked at me like I was now the bigger menace to them. And the reason for that was because I was making a scene, right? I was making an issue out Mm -hmm. of this. And if the police had come along, I would have been okay because I'm white and I'm British. They would not have been. And that to me was crushing because I realized with more clarity than I had before that for so many people in Dubai, life consists of just being trampled by powerful people, by wealthier people and never being able to say anything about it. And it's really, really heartbreaking. And so I think it's a really tough place to live from that perspective. And so it's a strange place. Yeah, wow. I didn't know the half of it. I see some similarities with China too. I was going to say, does that sound familiar? Yeah, obviously China is a more culturally monolithic. I mean, there are Mm -hmm. differences, but it's it's not the huge melting pot like Dubai. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, just in terms of it being authoritarian, but at the same time, like incredibly safe, you could Mm -hmm. go out to a nightclub, drink till three in the morning, wander down the street with money clutched in both hands and nobody Mm -hmm. will touch you. That might seem great at first, but you start to look at, well, what are all the things about this authoritarian society that allow for this to be and it's yeah kind of right a bit ugly and it begins to chafe as well right like it begins oh to yeah ultimately great and i think it's brilliant if you're living in a safe society if you have children because you don't have to worry about them or if you're a woman it's brilliant to live in a safe place where you don't have to worry about walking down the street at night but the trade-off for that is things like we were never able to use Skype. You know, this conversation wouldn't have been possible if I was in Dubai still. Skype was banned. You know, much as it is in China, huh. Skype was banned. WhatsApp calling was banned. Facebook calling was banned. The whole lot. And look, yes, that's a pain for me, but I just go out and buy a phone contract that gives me international minutes, right? It's an inconvenience to me, but it's not the end of the world. For the taxi driver who's earning like $10 a week, He's not able to go out and buy all those international minutes, right? He relies on free applications like Skype or like WhatsApp to call his family back in Pakistan, you know, wherever he's from. So those authoritarian policies ultimately hit the poorest in society the hardest. It's really, really unfair. And so you can enjoy the benefits of living in a place like that. But there comes a time when you have to countenance the people who are suffering in society and you have to ask yourself well am i benefiting off the back of these people and the answer is yes and so that's a really hard dilemma and it's why half the people leave after a certain amount of time when the magic wears off and they realize what's going on and half the people stay because they decide they can live with this or they decide that they don't want to think about it too much or they decide that's just the way the world works and they'll happily continue to take their nice paycheck with no income tax and live 
safely you know and so that's something that happens to a lot of people i think whether you're in china or wherever that day comes for a lot of us where we have to question can we keep doing this right yeah before we move on to the next section i did want to ask about the telegraph because many of the listeners probably aren't terribly familiar i know i have listeners in the uk but especially americans we know it's a newspaper we don't know a ton beyond that a lot of us. So what is it like working there and, you know, doing the energy beat for, you know, the Telegraph's a general interest publication. It's not mm. Bloomberg or Reuters or it's a different level of wonkiness. So, yeah, what's the Telegraph like and what's it like writing about energy for them? It's really interesting. The Telegraph is an amazing place. It's huge, you know, it employs thousands of journalists, which is new for me. It's not financially insecure, which has been my experience at pretty much every other news organization I've worked for. So that's novel. You know, it's a fun, interesting place. It's got some brilliant journalists and it writes in a particular way for a particular audience. And as you say, it's a general audience of readers up and down the country that skew older on the whole. And they are people who care about what the oil markets are doing because they're invested in oil companies like BP and Shell. They care mm. about, obviously, slightly more mundane things like the price of gasoline at the pump, which is a huge story. You know, it's always a massive story in daily newspapers because it impacts the average reader. And so that kind of thing can sometimes seem a bit mundane or inconsequential if you're used to writing about these like grand stories of war or of political turmoil and then you're writing about oh the price of petrol went up by 15 cents a liter or whatever it can seem a bit mundane i actually don't write about gasoline prices or petrol prices as we would call them here because we have like a consumer business team that focuses on those kinds of things sure. but that is the general kind of story that would be of interest to our readers and from an energy perspective we're looking at things like the price of oil. We're looking at things like what BP and Shell, which are major London listed oil companies are doing abroad. So I would say there's an overwhelming preference for stories about UK companies. Sort of second to that, it would be London listed companies. So that would be the most interesting thing to my editors. Our readers aren't huge fans of climate change. I would say a lot <laughs> of them are very skeptical about climate change, which is interesting and is not something I particularly agree with. But I write about the environment, I write about climate change, and I write about renewables companies a lot. It's a huge, huge part of the narrative in the energy sector now. And so it's unavoidable, really. It's something that agitates or inspires emotion in our readers. The idea of renewables companies becoming so prominent here in the UK, which they are. It's a huge, huge industry now here in the UK. So yeah, I don't know if that's painted a very good picture of our readers or not. I apologize if it hasn't. But yeah, that's a sort of snapshot of the kind of people that The Telegraph writes for. 
that makes sense if the readership is skews slightly older than that right. they would be a bit more skeptical on things like climate change and especially you know in a country whose fortunes in the past have been very tied to oil with these big companies and the UK's presence in the Middle East and things right. like that you know people with connections to oil or that kind of thinking can feel attacked by it and one big difference is also just like it's been a while since I've worked at a newspaper but I know the difference at a newspaper like the Telegraph is if you write about climate change, you'll get letters to the editor for sure. <laughs> like, right. Whereas at a place like Reuters, nobody's writing letters to the editor. We don't have that outlet. So yeah, people are vocal. People will comment on stories. The comment sections are crazy. Yeah, they'll just blow up. I had a story a few months ago, pre-corona, about JP Morgan had issued a report privately. They hadn't published it and they hadn't sent it to the media. But the report was essentially climate change risks sort of destroying everything we know and eviscerating economies and our ways of life. And this is like JP Morgan, right? And I got a hold of this report, like a copy of this report, and we published a story about it. Like the JP Morgan report had like a really eye-catching headline. I can't remember what it was, but it was like, life as we know it under threat from climate change. And it was the first time they'd really acknowledged the risk to business and economies. And uh, like the comments went crazy underneath the story. There was like a thousand plus comments in like a few hours. It was just insane. And there's so much distrust People were accusing JP Morgan of essentially having some financial interest now in promoting the risks of climate change. People are just so distrustful now of institutions that they think everyone has an agenda. And if JP Morgan have decided to speak about the risks and the dangers of climate change, it must be because they have a financial motivation to do so. So interesting. Just the faith in institutions, like the assumption that they must have ulterior motives is, it's really, it's present everywhere. And it's so pernicious. Yeah, definitely. So that's kind of the first part, the biographical part. And then if it's all right with you, we'll move on to talk about a couple of stories. Sure. So yeah, let's move on to a story you're proud of. There's another story you want to talk about and walk us through. My Uber story would always be kind of my number one because it involved so many different segments of society. And from the corporate perspective, I interviewed like two dozen drivers who were actually like in the mix. Those are the guys that were being essentially trafficked over to the UAE and being given contracts they couldn't read and all of that. So I interviewed like two dozen drivers. I interviewed Uber executives government officials, lawyers, like everyone. And so it was a big reporting project and it was watertight and it had to be completely, completely watertight. Otherwise the story would never have been published. It was such a sensitive thing that I had to be sure that I'd nailed down everything. So that's a story that I'm like super proud of. It was very impactful. It catalyzed change within the Ministry of Labor. So hopefully it had some impact on the lives of those drivers and the people we were talking about earlier on in the program of, you know, those people who are most hard done by in Dubai, those people who suffer the most, the poorest in society, like having an impact on their lives, a positive impact will forever be like my proudest achievement. And so, yeah, that would be the story I would always choose. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I won't belabor this part of it then. Um, And if it's all right with you, the next section is faster paced questions. I cheesily call it the lightning round. So the first question is, what is a must read publication that you look at almost every day? And I mean more for work 
than for personal pleasure, a publication you read because you might miss some news or something like that. Reuters. <laughs> I'm not just saying that. Genuinely, a Reuters is indispensable. I mean, for every journalist, it's like they're the first, they're the most accurate. It's just super useful for any business journalist no matter what beat you're on they've always got it and so it's just great for just reading every day about what's happening on your patch around the world and then the next one is what is a publication you read listen to or watch just for fun that doesn't have to do with your job i watch complex complex are like a new york media organization that came about in like the early 2000s primarily focused on hip-hop and like streetwear and like fashion and they have probably their most famous show now on youtube is hot ones where the guest eats hot wings and gets asked questions as the wings get progressively (laughs) hotter it's a great novel way of doing an interview with a celebrity because it throws out that boring question and answer that you find celebrities have when they're doing these promotional trips for films and stuff that they're doing it makes it a lot more interesting because the hot sauce gets so hot that they're like crying and they're in pain and it actually elicits a genuine response from them instead of just like a cookie cutter yeah i'm so happy to have worked with this director and this actor you know so so that's like a really really cool fresh thing and then another property they have is a sneaker show it's a show just about sneakers called full size run it's like a talk show and they basically just like have a guest on every week and they just discuss sneakers. They discuss footwear. And so I really like that. It's very low stakes and it's a nice way to switch off by watching that. And then the next question is, what's the best journalistic article, piece, whatever you've consumed recently? It's a really tough question, Jake, because I can't remember like anything I've read because I feel like the last few weeks have just been such a flurry of information and news stories and it's like all melting into one so there's no one piece of writing or one story that really jumps out although i will give special mention and i swear i'm not just doing this because you work for reuters but the reuters tiktok on the uk's response to coronavirus was brilliant and it was the first one to come out since then the guardian have done one the sunday times have done one but the reuters one was the first one and it was brilliant but the last piece of journalism pre-corona that really stood out to me was the new york times piece on cabbies and their medallions did you read this yeah it was written by a friend of mine who's been on the podcast uh, and talked all about it yeah a guy named brian rosenthal yeah okay Cool. Fellow podcast alumni. So brilliant, brilliant piece. It was the first piece that came to mind when you asked your question. Just classic time style of like fourth or fifth paragraph down going like, for this story, the Times interviewed 570 cab drivers and, you know, 3000 government officials. And we trawled through 5 million documents and record, you know, it's just like classic times largesse in the reporting and the scope of reporting just fantastic just so comprehensive and thoroughly reported and just a brilliant human story at the center of it about these taxi drivers and the sacrifices they've made and the financial burdens that they live with and this brilliant story about bureaucracy and corruption it was just like quintessential kind of new york story well written 
and engaging and just brilliant. I'll have to let Brian know that he'll be thrilled to hear that. And yeah, it's amazing. He did that not long after joining the Times. It's a great piece. And then how do you manage your work-life balance? So I think I probably balance my professional life and my personal life quite badly. I'm not great with time management. I try and spread my working week out over seven days. That makes sense. So I might finish my day on a Tuesday a bit earlier, like at 4.30, for example, in the afternoon, so that I can go out and enjoy a couple of hours of sunshine or whatever the case might be. And then I'll do a couple of hours on a Saturday morning. I don't keep my weekends as sacrosanct and my weekdays as the days for work because I don't want to pack too much into Monday through Friday and then just be exhausted on the weekend. I like to try and live a bit more of a normal life during the weekdays but look as we discussed at the top of the show like i'm a news junkie have always been a news junkie and it's hard to switch off right it's hard to not be checking the news on the weekend or when you're on holiday or when you're out with your friends at a restaurant it's hard and that becomes accentuated or exacerbated i would say when there's a big global story like covid-19 or even the oil price crash it's hard right and so you have to try and separate work and life but not always easy to do and then the next question is is twitter important to you Yes. Yeah, yeah. Twitter's very important to me. Twitter has been hugely beneficial to my career just in terms of networking, in terms of self-promotion. I had a tweet last year. I had a story, I should say, about Tom Barrick, who was a financier to the Trump campaign and a very, very wealthy American businessman who's very close to the administration. And he was in Abu Dhabi and he made some remarks about how the crimes that Saudi Arabia had committed, namely the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, was comparable to the crimes committed by America. So he was drawing this equivalence between Saudi and America. And I was the only person in the room, a room full of journalists at this huge conference that put up on his comments. And I ran outside and I typed my story up. And the story amazingly made it into the newspaper, made it onto the website. But it was like, uh, it was on page 50. No one saw it. <laughs> no one would have read it. But I went on Twitter and I wrote my tweet and I said, new story from me, Trump ally Tom Barrick compares Saudi Arabia to the US. Words to that effect. And like, I went to bed and I woke up the next morning. I was like, I only had like a thousand followers at this point. I didn't have many followers. And it was like, come on, like, please let this be the one that goes viral or does something. This is a great story. I'm really proud of this. And like, no one had seen it. And I was like, oh, this is awful. And then just, just as I'm like getting up, getting ready for work, like my phone starts like pinging and pinging. And I was like, what is going on? And like someone who followed me had retweeted my story and then Chris haze or like some just planet of a person just like with this enormous orbit of people around him retweeted it and then the next thing i know i'm getting calls from the washington post from the new york times my childhood dreams like these publications were calling me just like a little reporter 
at a local newspaper in Dubai, they were calling me and being like, can we get the audio recording or whatever? It exploded. And it was in like every publication I've ever enjoyed or I've ever respected. And it was this huge, huge moment for my career. And no one gave a shit at my newspaper. But like, I can guarantee you that it was the first time that Gulf News has ever been referenced in the New York Times. It's like the first time that Gulf News has ever been referenced by the BBC. And that was just off the strength of Twitter. That would never have happened if I hadn't tweeted that out. Now, when I write a story, like I had a story last night about Tesla and Reuters and Bloomberg had picked it up this morning, right? I didn't even have to like tweet it out because I'm at the Telegraph now and things have changed. But at Gulf News, if I didn't promote myself on Twitter... No one would ever have heard about my stories. And through that self-promotion, I then get talking to people from Bloomberg or I get talking to people from The Telegraph or wherever. And suddenly my prospects as a local reporter have just gone international. I've now got a better chance at getting a job that I really, really want. And so that networking and that self-promotion was all done through Twitter. And so for me, Twitter has been a hugely, hugely beneficial tool. And I'm not big enough or famous enough in any way, shape or form to get some of the hatred and abuse that other people get. So for me, it's a universally positive platform. And then the next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I would say <laughs> I'm not super studied in the history of journalism, so I'll go with a living journalist. And my choice would probably be John Sopel, who's the North America correspondent for the BBC. And the reason I would choose him is because if I could have anyone's career as a journalist and having essentially every outlet, every organization I've ever worked for has always been on the some brink of collapse in terms of job cuts and things like that. The fact that he has had a really successful run at the BBC, which has all this cachet and prestige for me as a Brit, and he's now the North America correspondent at a time of really interesting upheaval in American history. And he's earning like 250, 300,000 pounds a year. And I appreciate it's like super crass to talk about money and how much people earn. And when people ask me, like, if you could be any journalist or if you could have any job, what job would you have as a journalist? And I, I tend to say John Sopel, I tend to say like the North America correspondent for the BBC. And the reason I say that is because like he earns good money and people always like turn their nose up at me for saying that as if like journalists should be above wanting to be paid a respectable amount of money. Like we shouldn't be allowed to earn a, a good, good living. I get that. But at the same time, I came into journalism in 2014, 2015, and I've never known a stable industry, right? Like I've never known an industry that won't just chew me up and spit me out and will just fucking fire me at the drop of a hat or make me redundant rather at the drop of a hat. And so for me, financial security, if I'm going to stay in journalism is extremely important. And so my answer is John Sobel because he's had an amazing career. He's in America as the top guy for the BBC. Uh, just such an amazing time, such an interesting time. He lives in New York, I think, which is an amazing city to live in. And he earns enough to live a good life and to be able to retire one day and not have to worry about 
where his pension's coming from or how he's going to afford to live. And so that's super attractive to me. And so that's my answer. I get it because you're really looking to check three different boxes. Journalists want to do important, engaging work. But if you're doing important, engaging work with no job security or without the respect for the work, so you're looking for the engaging work, but you also want your work to be respected and recognized. And then the third thing is you want financial security and like having the three of those things is really the trifecta for what I think most journalists want. And then what do you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Do you think? (laughs) That's a good question. What I bring to the table as a journalist is basically just being able to talk to anyone and basically just being able to like make friends with people and basically just talk to people and get close to them and make them trust me and yeah, form relationships with people. That is my main unique skill, I would say, or the thing that I think I'm best at. That's what I bring to the table. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Oh, there's there's so many things really, isn't there? Like there's so many, so many mistakes have been made uh, over the years. But one thing, I don't know, I'm a really optimistic person. So a lot of people would say, oh, I'd go back and tell myself, oh, everything's going to work out. Everything will be okay. Don't worry too much about this thing that's going to happen to you. For me, like I've always been very, very positive about the future. I have this kind of blind grounded optimism and it served me quite well because I've always been able to bounce back from things happening to me. If I could talk to myself at 20, I would say make the most of being at university and use the network that the university has to try and find out what you want to do for a living before you leave. Don't just get catapulted into the real world with zero idea of what you want to do and not have the university to help you with introductions and stuff like that. Use that. Use the university for what it is and you will get a massive head start. If I was talking to my 21-year-old self who was working as a mailman, I would say appreciate this for what it is because you will always be grateful for having done this job because you'll always have a sense of perspective about how lucky you are to be a journalist. I mean, it's difficult because obviously you had to get fired from all those things to end up where you are today. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And if you stay in a job for too long, if you have a reluctance to hit the ejector seat button, you can end up in a job forever that's miserable. And we all know people who are too reluctant to hit the ejector seat. And that can be as damaging as bailing from jobs too often. That has a really negative connotation, like always being fired or always resigning from jobs. But like not resigning enough or not getting fired enough is not good either. Because if you keep getting fired, you will eventually find something that you don't want to get fired from a lot of the time. And that can lead you to something that makes you really happy. So don't be afraid to get fired, is my advice. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. And then uh, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I own a record label and I put out music on a record label and I do a lot of DJing at clubs and parties and stuff like that. So a lot of people from my journalistic career don't know that about me, don't know that I have that other side of my life. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking to you for the first time, really, but I would not have guessed that based on talking to you for the past two hours. What kind of music, (laughs) just out of curiosity? We release, I would say, mostly like electronic music, and we have 
as many artists as possible from around the world and we try and shine the light on them and we have a series called good morning from and it's like usually like a two-hour mix of songs that they'll put together and it'll be titled with the city that they're from so it's like good morning lahore or good morning istanbul or good morning denver or you know whatever and we have like a long-running series where we'll put out people's music from around the world and transport the listener to that city that that person is from and give them a taste of what music they're listening to what's inspiring them what is really acting as the soundtrack to that city on that day so yeah that's pretty much what we do and then we also do like parties in london like we host artists who come to london and that kind of stuff very cool what's the name of the label the name of the label is everything will be okay so so a reflection of my uh, reflection of my blind optimism i wanted the label to speak to that a little bit very cool and then what is your favorite film book tv or other media property or work about journalists and why i think probably and this is perhaps an answer that you get a lot so apologies but spotlight for me is the best representation of journalism that i've ever seen and it's a wonderfully acted wonderfully shot and beautifully written film and for me the film is so good because it inspires me when i watch it as a journalist i'm like shit this like gets my heart racing i'm like this is why i love being a journalist because it meticulously documents the process from the first lead they get and the first tip that they get on this story through the like methodical systematic approach to interviewing different people involved in this abuse scandal and the bureaucratic fight they have against the catholic church which has this outsized power in boston and anyone who's ever lived in like an authoritarian country can kind of see the echoes of that in the catholic church and the power they had in catholic areas like boston and so that is brilliant and then just like there's a scene towards the end of the film and i won't say too much about it but there's this brilliant scene where they have the story it's pretty much ready to go and they have a fight in the newsroom between the reporters and the editor because the reporters want to publish the story and the editor doesn't and the editor wants to wait and they have this massive argument and like every journalist has had that experience like every journalist has had that argument with their editor where they're like this story needs to fucking go right now and the editor's like no it doesn't it can wait and to you as a reporter it's, it's literally like feels like life or death it's like if the story doesn't go then it's good. it's like the end of the world and the editor feels differently because they're slightly less personally invested or they see things differently. But the scene in which they have this fight, this argument is like so accurate to me as a journalist, even just down to the editor says to the reporter, like, are we done? Like, are we done to like shut the reporter up? And like, I've had editors say that to me before. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> you know, so it was like super familiar. But yeah, it was like really just a brilliant film. And ultimately it's a film about like the impact 
that journalism can have on people's lives and uncovering abuse that they're afraid to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I would say to reference Anchorman, 50% of the time people choose Spotlight every time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I've definitely had those kind of arguments with editors. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I would be a probably a radio host, maybe like playing music on the radio. I think that sounds like one of the best jobs in the world. Just like turn up every day and just like play music and talk. I think that sounds like really good fun. Or maybe like a talk show host. That would be cool. Like that would be good fun. Yeah. So like probably that or astrophysicist. And that's truly if qualifications don't matter because my (laughs) maths is like, horrendous it's an affront to mankind it's so bad so i would never ever be able to be an astrophysicist in this life so that's the true like dream career because it will just never ever happen good answers okay well that's all the questions so yeah i'll just end by saying thanks so much for coming on the show ed man listen thanks so much jake i really really appreciate it great great talking to you i really really enjoyed it and i look forward to doing it again sometime that's our show thanks for listening to my conversation with ed klaus a reporter for the telegraph in london i'll post links to some of ed's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page foreignpod.podbeam.com If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, June 28th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.